This is Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Today I'm joined by Dr. Walter Boynton, one of the preeminent estuarine scientists, not only in Maryland, not only in the Chesapeake Bay, but in the entire world. Walter, it's an honor to have you sitting here today. Well, it's great to be here. <laughs> We've known each other for a long time. I think you and I probably got started in this game about the same time, 40 years ago, something like that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, um, I remember hearing about the Bay Foundation when I, I believe I was first at CBL as a summer student in 1970. Is that possible? It is. We were actually celebrating our 50th year, so we started in 1967. Yeah. So you were at the Chesapeake Biological Laboratory, part of the University of Maryland, in 1970. Yeah, actually, I, I was there as a summer student beginning in uh, 1969. Okay. And I had, um, I had just finished walking up the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> as, uh, the, as The entire length? I went from Georgia to Massachusetts before I ran out of money <laughs> and time. And my dad told me if I didn't go to graduation, it would break my mother's heart. So I stopped then. And um, I had a, a, an envelope, a, a letter at home. And I asked my dad, I called him and said, what's in the letter? And he said, well, I haven't opened it, but I don't think you ought to open it either. And I said, why, dad? And he goes, well, it's from the Solomon Islands. He said, I was there during the war, and it was a hellhole. It was awful. <laughs> you know, we were killing people. They were trying to kill us. I'd never go there, and I wouldn't want you to go there either. So I said, Dad, look at the rest of the address. He goes, oh, Maryland. He said, well, I don't think you ought to go there either. That's the deep south. <laughs> yeah, so our reader, our listeners have probably already caught a little bit of an accent. Where are you from, Walter? <laughs> I grew up in North Andover, Massachusetts, and uh, I, I always think the accent's gone away. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it has not. No. So, so that brought you to Maryland. Yes. To the Chesapeake Bay. That's right. Pick up the story for a bit. Well, I worked uh, at CBL as uh, a tech for a while. I had applied to five graduate schools at the time and got turned down by all five of them. <laughs> And uh, God bless the faculty at, at CBL at the time. They just encouraged me to apply. And what their point was that now I had some practical experience in ecology and that I'd be a viable candidate. So um, uh, <laughs> I have a record of excesses in some things. So I applied to 12 schools <laughs> and I got into 11. And, um, and, and one of them was at the University of North Carolina where an ecologist named Howard Odom was uh, uh, on the faculty. And the faculty at CBL said, you need to work with this guy. And so that's what I did. Dr. Uh, I was, Odom, very, very well known. Yeah, yeah. a super creative guy. And, and um, you know, he's had a terrific uh, influence on the way I think about ecology. And, and my, you know, friend Mike Kemp, who I've co collaborated with for decades, um, so Dr. Mike, this, Dr. Michael Kemp, also University of Maryland. That's yep. right. And, um, and the view was, was whole system. And, and that's what we really um, like working on. And that whole system included people. And back then, in the uh, mid-70s or so, 
uh, that was not very well accepted in the field of ecology. But um, it seemed to us, particularly having worked with Odom, that uh, we would be missing a huge part of the action if uh, people were not part of the equation. It's, it's interesting. I often say the Chesapeake Bay, and I describe the watershed, six states, 64,000 square miles, and I call it a system. And only a system's approach towards improving it, towards restoring it, makes any sense scientifically. Yeah, I agree. So I, I sort of pulled that out of my ear, but you, you, you're telling me I've, I've been right all along. I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that's good news. Shockingly, you have been right. <laughs> you know, interestingly, during the Second World War, uh, Howard Odom was, uh, he was in the nascent Air Force. I think it was called the Army Air Corps at the time. And he was a meteorologist. And one of the things that really got him going about this system business was that even back then, the meteorologists talked about weather systems. Mm -hmm. And that was an accepted um, piece of the dogma. And, uh, and H.T. very successfully transferred that kind of thinking, and, and with his brother Eugene, into uh, the world of ecology. Boy, that sure fits right in with the whole issue, concept uh, of global climate change yes, and does. weather as a system. Well, I'd like to come back to climate change and its impact on the Bay in a little bit. Don't let me forget that. Okay, so you got out of UNC, you got to Maryland and the oh, University of Maryland next? Or? I went to the University of Florida after that. Okay. I got a degree in environmental engineering with Odom. And then um, I was getting ready to take a job either with EPA uh, in the Great Lakes or the University of Texas. And uh, one of our faculty members at CBL, a fellow named Joe Mahersky, I know who Joe I well. met as a summer student, but only briefly, said, uh, and who was a giant fan of Odom's work, um, uh, called up and said, hey, you know, we have a, uh, uh, a faculty slot open. We'd like you to come interview for it. So um, I thought, huh. Um, so I, uh, Mary Ellen and I were married then, and we met in Solomon's, and so she knew something about the place, and we both thought about, you know, Michigan, Texas, Maryland. We thought, hmm, Maryland. So I applied for the job, and I was lucky enough to get it. And that was in 1975. So you so. beat me by a year. <laughs> I came in 1976, a little, just maybe a few years younger than you, because I started as an intern right out of college at the ah. Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Well, I'm retired, and you're still at it, so <laughs> you are rapidly outpacing me. Well, Walter, um, you, you truly have been at the ground floor of Chesapeake Bay science with a number of other colleagues, but I, I've always so respected you and many others can do this well as, as can do this well also, but you are able to communicate the science in a way people can understand. So I got a couple of questions for you. It's a question I get asked almost wherever I go, and I bet you do too. How's the bay doing? <laughs> <laughs> can you can you answer that in less than uh, an hour and a half? <laughs> Actually, I think I can. Good for go for it. You know, in, in most of my career, you know, which spans quite a few decades, mainly what people like, like myself and many colleagues were doing, we were 
first trying to convince people that there was a problem, uh, and then we needed to convince people what the problem was, and uh, then we worked on how does the problem work. Um, but in the last couple of years, um, uh, there have been definitive signs that we are making progress. So what I tell people now is that there are some strong and there are subtle signs that the bay is turning the corner. Those signs are stronger in some places than in other places. But by golly, there are some really strong signs that make scientific sense. It's, it's not the kind of thing that's happening and we go, I have no idea why this is happening. It's nice, but we have no idea. In fact, we have some very good ideas as to why we are seeing positive trends uh, in multiple areas around the Bay. Okay, I'm going to ask you why, but first, just to make sure I understand and our, our listeners do, you're seeing enough trends going in the right direction for a long enough period of time that you can say this is the beginning of the restoration of the Bay? I think so. Fragile, of course, but definitively the beginning, yeah. which is a huge it's a sea change from a system that was, at best, bumping along. Yes, correct. Um, so, and, and so the reason we, I, I feel pretty strongly and fairly confident about this is that um, probably first and foremost, the, um, the, the nutrient loads that are going into the bay, they're going down. Nitrogen and phosphorus. Yes, you got it. And... Um, and the pots that are going down the most are the forms of nitrogen and phosphorus that actually grow the algae. And so that is really, really important. And there are a lot of reasons why those are going down. You know, um, uh, atmospheric deposition of nitrogen has decreased. So this is a great example of the Clean Air Act helping the Clean Water Act. That is terrific. Nitrogen gets into the atmosphere whenever you burn a fossil fuel. That's correct. Uh, yeah. And what goes up comes back down. Absolutely. So you reduce what goes up, you reduce what gets to the bay. That's correct. Yep. Good. That's one big and, reason. Uh, modern engineering at so wastewater treatment plants has come a country mile. Um, so the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus coming out of these wastewater treatment plants uh, it's, it's going down, and in many places, it's gone down by a factor of two. For phosphorus, it's gone down by a factor of 10 or more. So, um, uh, you know, we should all tip our hats to the, um, you know, the engineers that make those places work. 30 years ago, um, the idea of removing nitrogen from, from uh, sewage treatment plants, first off, it was, it was thought stupid, uh, unnecessary, and then it was thought just way too expensive, and, and basically people didn't know how to do it. Remember the arguments? It's not nitrogen, it's right. phosphorus. That's Don't worry correct. about nitrogen. Right. And then the science, thanks to guys like you. And many others. And proved um, that it was both. Yeah. So we have uh, in the Chesapeake and in places uh, around the world really now, uh, in estuarine systems, uh, and in coastal waters, the idea that uh, you, we need a dual nutrient reduction strategy has been um, pretty well accepted and, and in some places well implemented. So um, just to have you say this rather than me saying it, 
the, this improvement in the Chesapeake Bay system is not accidental. It's not a act of God. It's not a change in, meet, in, in weather. It is because people decided certain practices needed to be put in place. They've been put in place and we're seeing results. Is, is that fair? Let me make this really clear. Yep. <laughs> yes. Taken a lot of money. It has. A lot of political support. That's been very, very important. And, and great science. That, yep. Uh, I think that's pointed us in the right direction. I gave a, a talk to the uh, uh, Chesapeake Bay Commission. The, ex the commission the, and also you the, met, talked with the executive, executive council, council, all the governors. And, and one of the points I made there was that um, by, <clears throat> by having a program that, that works uh, with the public, with the elected officials and with the science community and with the environmental community and with many other communities, one of the things the science community has contributed is it has helped us not to get down bad pathways. And I think um, the uh, nitrogen and phosphorus debate is a prime example of that. You know, it's, it's old news now. But if we had hung with that policy of just removing phosphorus, uh, we would be in a sorry state. So um, I think that was a good example of um, uh, science exploring something that they did not understand at the time, um, getting some understanding, and then bringing it to management. Uh, good example. And I want to pause there because you were in front of the Chesapeake Executive Council, which is all of the governors of the Bay States, the head of EPA, head of the Chesapeake Bay Commission, and they have been meeting, sometimes they don't all attend, often they don't all attend, for, for many, many years, once a year. Right. And while the Chesapeake Bay Foundation is always pushing our elected officials to do more, I think it's very fair to say that we in the Mid-Atlantic and the Chesapeake Bay watershed have enjoyed remarkable bipartisan support for many, many years for cleaning up the bay. And at that meeting, the chairmanship of the executive council was transferred from Governor McAuliffe, who's been chair for two years, Virginia's Governor McAuliffe, to Maryland's Governor Hogan. And you and I and I think others are optimistic Am I putting words in your mouth that we're going to continue to see the kind of improvements and the kind of political support we have in the past? Yeah, I, I'm pleasantly surprised, and I am optimistic. Um, the, uh, the hearings we also attended on Capitol Hill um, uh, gave me a sense of optimism. Uh, so people from uh, actually across a very broad political spectrum uh, were on record of supporting um, Chesapeake Bay restoration, continued efforts. So that was really good. To achieve that continuation, what would you, what advice would you give to the listeners of this podcast? Um, I, I have a couple pieces of advice. Um, and, and it goes something like this. Um, there are things you can do in your own yard and there are places where you can find out how to do that. Uh, go to the web and you will find lots of things. So my advice is do it. <laughs> Don't talk about it, do it. Uh, and then the second one is that 
most of us, uh, all of us live in some river basin, and many of those basins have river keepers or environmental organizations, um, and I think it's, I, I'm pretty radical here. <laughs> so, so sue me if you don't like it. But what I think is you have, you have a moral responsibility to join those organizations and support them. Um, and then for your listeners, uh, I, I view uh, CBF as, as an umbrella covering the whole watershed. So I would say to them, join your local riverkeeper, join CBF. Um, and then the third thing is, uh, instead of watching television one night, sit down and write a letter to the governor of your state, uh, your federal and state representatives. And, um, you know, I, I, scientists are largely writers, so I have done a ton of writing in my career. When I first started writing letters to the governor and so forth, it just scared me, you know, and I've gotten over it. So. Uh, you don't need to be Thomas Jefferson to write a letter to the governor and tell, tell them where you stand. So I would say sit down and write letters. Um, so those are, th those are three things that I would encourage people to do. Um, and they're all doable and they all make a difference. It's re really helpful and, and I couldn't agree more. Every speech I give, I always encourage. And as a president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, some people might be surprised but I encourage people to join their local watershed group, their local bay uh, keepers or water keepers, it, because it needs to be both local and then Chesapeake Bay Foundation regional, and then there's some great national or international conservation groups as well. Now the wild card in the room, I'm not gonna say the elephant in the closet, because <laughs> I'm not trying to say elephant versus donkey here, <laughs> is the new Trump administration. And uh, I know because you and I have talked in the past, there's real concern with the direction of the federal partner in this Bay Restoration effort. And it's my opinion that the federal partner has been the glue that has kept the states working together for these past 30 years. What do you think? Oh, absolutely correct. Um, I and, and others like you have been around here long enough so that, so that we can remember um, this sense of disorganization that was typical, typical, prior to the Bay Program. And so, um, the Bay Program, meaning the, the EPA, federal, federal consortium of maybe a dozen federal agencies with EPA as the lead. That's right. Working with the six states in the District of Columbia. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I think the glue is one way to say it, that's for sure. Um, but th there's also, more specifically, uh, there's leadership, uh, there's analysis, uh, there's oversight. Um, um, I remember when I first got one of my first monitoring program grants, uh, the word I got from the EPA Bay program was, um, we are really delighted to fund what you're doing, um, and we need insightful and timely reports. Without insightful and timely reports, your money supply will go to zero instantly. And so that kind of oversight was, um, you know, for an academic guy, I listened to them. And uh, that was important. So uh, I can't overstate the importance of that 
quote unquote federal presence. You know, um, in a sense, you and I are are preaching the same words that George Washington preached, um, both during and shortly after the Revolutionary War, and that was without a strong federal presence, uh, the states are not going to get a hell of a lot done. Uh, there are issues that are bigger than the states, and uh, we've got a six state and and D.C. issue, and so we absolutely need that oversight, and it needs to be more than, uh, well, it needs to be very similar to what it's been in the past, and that is it's not just um, signatures on a page, it's it's action, it's uh, financial support, it's um, that oversight I mentioned, lots of things. Leadership, yeah, leadership. funding, yep. prodding, keeping the uh, group on the scientific path forward. EPA has played a magnificent role. I was very close to Bill Ruckel's house, who really got the federal presence started. Yeah. And that kind of leadership among how many presidents since has, has been unflagging. That's right. It Republican and Democrat. No, 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 no correlation between political parties. It's been absolutely nonpartisan until now. Yeah. Well, um, one of my recommendations that I just mentioned to you was, um, you know, your listeners and members need to get busy and write letters, make phone calls. Um, they count. Uh, so... We, we absolutely need this program. And, and one of the things that people have pointed out is that, um, is that a restored bay uh, is, is a, uh, an, uh, an economic driver. A, um, a, a seriously polluted bay uh, is, is not. And so uh, I think from, from many points of view, um, that would include, you know, things like like economics, um, certainly uh, aesthetics and human health, both physical and mental. I mean, there's a big, long list of reasons why a restored, vibrant bay is uh, is a good thing. It's, it's really a necessary thing. Well, as 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 we sit here taping this show, taping this podcast, uh, we've just learned that the EPA administrator has decided to cut funding to the Chesapeake Bay Journal. This journal has been around for probably 30 years. It has been heralded as one of the true independent voices in the media to report on all sides of the question of Chesapeake Bay restoration and from the science to the local government across all spectrums. And it is supported by both private dollars and federal EPA dollars as part of the citizen communications that the Bay program has been known for. We just learned this morning that that money is going to be eliminated and the Bay Journal will have to either replace it or go away. What a loss that would be, Walter. Um, it, that would be horrific. I, I am a giant fan of the journal, um, and I agree with all of what you said. Unbiased, they have exceptionally good writers. I mean, I mean we're talking about people like Horton and Tim Wheeler and uh, Rona. Um, th these people are classy writers, they're good investigators. 
Um, I've been impressed over the years that um, uh, when I've done interviews with Carl or other, other folks on his team, um, they want to make sure that whatever I told them from the science world, they've got it right. Um, so they send me um, what amounts to a page proof and said, hey, have we got this right? That is really, really rare. Um, so uh, I, I think the world of them. You know, there are, in, in, my, in my world, um, the this world of ecology and estuarine uh, ecology, uh, there are dozens of journals. And I'm at a stage of my career where I brush through them and uh, sometimes I read the titles. If I'm real interested, I read the abstract. And if I'm really, really pressed it against the wall, I might read the whole paper. But the journal, I read that cover to cover. Um, and, um, and, I, and I've always done that. Um, so it's, that, that would be, that's unacceptable. Uh, we need the Bay Journal. Uh, I've heard po political people tell me um, some of them not, you know, particularly, you know, aligned with the environment to say that um, uh, the journal is the most important piece of paper they read. I've heard that too. They say that's where so many people on every side of the issue say this is where we get our information. Uh, our listeners may, by the time this is uh, online next week, may have seen information about this. We have no idea what the exact language is, what the press coverage will be. But if our listeners uh, uh, have not heard of or read or see the journal, they can Google Chesapeake Bay Journal and they'll see how to subscribe to it and see it in both digital or hard copy form. It is one of the great um, assets we have here in the Chesapeake Bay watershed to help people know and, and to do what the media should be doing, which is to get the word out on, on all aspects of a, of a topic. So it could be an enormous loss. And back to your suggestion that people write, um, if in fact this does come to pass, as we believe it will, what we've heard, uh, people should write to EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and demand that this money, which is a, a very small amount of money, be returned uh, for such a great asset that, that otherwise might be lost. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I wanted to um, close with a, with a couple of questions and, and your thoughts about climate change and the impact on Chesapeake Bay. Uh, I just saw a, a scientific piece um, this morning, actually, positing that there's a correlation between warmer water and smaller fish. Have you seen that? I have not. Does uh, that surprise you? Would that? No, uh, it does not surprise me. Um, years ago, um, some of the fish, fish guys uh, started using um, a, a type of modeling, which is really uh, a food budget for a fish. They have some fancy names for it, but basically it's um, a metabolic diet for, uh, for different kinds of fish. And one of the things they found was that um, uh, in the Chesapeake, um, a species like rockfish no longer could go into the deep water where it's cool. So they might go up into the surface water, eat a bunch of menhaden, 
and go to the deep water to uh, digest it. Meta yeah, metabolism. And um, uh, they, their metabolism, rockfish and all the fish, uh, most all fish, um, their metabolism is, is correlated with temperature. So they burn off more energy when it's warm. So there were times when some of these species, bluefish I remember in particular, they were eating voraciously and not gaining weight. Hmm. So, uh, and because they were living in water all the time that was really quite warm. So the idea of um, a fish not growing quite as much uh, because of warmer temperatures makes some sense mm -hmm. to me, but I haven't seen the article. Mm -hmm. So this, this goes under the, the category of wild, off-the-cuff <laughs> speculation. And even if, it's, if it isn't borne out, tell us a little bit about the other impacts on a Chesapeake Bay system of warming water. Yeah, well, there, there are a bunch. From what I know of it, um, most of them seem to be negative. Um, so one of the things that, that occurs, and probably one of the most important ones, is that in the deep water of the bay, most of the oxygen that's used up, that creates the dead zone, is used by bacteria. And bacteria are generally very temperature sensitive. So if you jack the temperature up, they're going to breathe more. They're going to use more oxygen. So that's, that's an issue. Uh, a second one is that uh, as water warms, um, the amount of oxygen the water can hold decreases. So um, it's the opposite of sugar in your coffee, where you, you know, if you have nice hot coffee, you can just pour a ton of sugar <laughs> in there and it'll dissolve. But in water, oxygen operates the other way around. That is, the warmer the water, the less oxygen it can hold. So that's not good. Um, those are the two... two big ones that um, that I, I worry about uh, with regards to um, just the temperature pot. And in the Southern Bay, where eelgrass is the dominant right. underwater grass, warmer water, really. they cannot sustain themselves, the, the, the population. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, this past summer, we have temperature measurements now being made at the end of the CBL Pier, uh, which sticks out 800 feet into the Patuxent River, and the surface water temperatures uh, cracked 31 degrees centigrade this summer. For those of us who don't <laughs> communicate with centigrade as easily as you do, Fahrenheit? Oh, man. <laughs> I, I have to get a calculator. Well over 80, though. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's warm water. Oh, it's bathtub. Yeah, yeah you could take a bath in it. Yeah. The other part of, of this story has to do with uh, precipitation in the basin. And um, if, if it turns out, and there's some hints that this is true, that precipitation becomes more intense. Um, not necessarily more of it, but, but more intense. Yes. Um, it is the intense rainstorms that, that lead to erosion and rapid input of materials to the bay. Pulses of pollution. Yeah, that's right, pulses. And you know, because we have big rivers, particularly the Susquehanna, the pulses can get pretty big. So I think that's of concern. So in, in many, under many circumstances, a buffer, for instance, could handle one, two inches of rain. That's what it's designed to do. Um, if you get the three and four inches, not so much. My simple so. mind thinks of it as nature loves balance <laughs> and abhors an extreme. Yeah. Basically okay? Yeah. All right. You know, one other thing, Will, that I should say is that um, not only are there signs of restoration in the Bay, um, big ones being 
that um, Bob Orth from the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, uh, they did a survey of seagrasses around the bay, and one of the things they found was that in 10 different areas of the bay where nutrient loads were reduced, seagrasses came back. That is pretty impressive. On a baywide basis, um, seagrasses are cranking up, and they almost cracked 100,000 acres this year. That's good news. There is also another story embedded in that that's real important, and that is with the seagrass increase, um, we've had some storms, like in 2011, uh, uh, Tropical Storm Lee, um, and we've had some droughts, uh, like right at the beginning of the 2000s. And what we saw there was that when the seagrasses got pounded by really wet years, they did not go back to zero. And when they saw conditions uh, that were slightly better, they continued the increase. They continued the increase. So what that says is there's some resilience being built into this system. So I'm not saying that's true everywhere, but I am saying that we are seeing signs of this, and this is really important. So when, um, when you say, you know, these big punches that, that the bay takes from storm events, for instance, I think the bay may be getting better at handling which is really, really important. That's what this resilience idea is all about. That, that underline, underscore resilience. That's yeah. what we all hope for, and that's what I think, uh, as you say, we're starting to see. Now, I, I'm going to let you go. I probably kept you too long, but it's I'm having too much fun. <laughs> I got two more questions. One, I hope, is going to be a short answer, and the second might be just a little longer. The, the first one is, are you seeing this kind of a response in any complex marine system anywhere else in the world? Uh, yes. Where? Uh, well, uh, you know, our neighbors in Florida, Tampa Bay, they've done a great job of reducing nutrient loads to Tampa Bay, and they have seen some wonderful increases in seagrasses, increases in water clarity. Those were the big issues there. So that's one example right there. Um, I think in northern Europe, uh, we've got a bunch of examples uh, around the Danish coast, um, some of the Norwegian areas, and certainly uh, in parts of Sweden. So we are, we are seeing these things, um, and uh, that's really important. I thought you were going to say something different, and I was going to give you credit for this being the only place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but you, big systems like the Gulf of Mexico, even the world's oceans, are certainly showing real stress from anoxic or eutrophied conditions. Well, uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico is, um, the dead zone there is a big one. Um, the Baltic Sea has a big one. What, one of the lessons, though, we can take from that is that and this is an important lesson, is that um, those dead zones, uh, particularly in the Gulf, they vary from year to year, and they vary according to how big a nutrient load gets in there. So the implication of that is that if those loads come down, we should see responses pretty doggone quick. And I think that's another thing that the, uh, the science has helped us understand is that uh, in the old days, in the 70s and early 80s, people would say, uh, have told me many times, we've been polluting this bay for, you know, 200 years and it's going to take 200 years for it to get better. That's not true. That's great um, news. So there's just abundant evidence, uh, both here and elsewhere, that says if there's a dramatic decline in, in the pollution rate, 
in other words, the amount of nitrogen and phosphorus getting into the bay, the bay is going to respond pretty doggone quick. So and you mentioned uh, uh, the dead zone. For the last two summers, so 2015 and 2016, we saw some remarkably good conditions in terms of overall dissolved oxygen levels in the bay. So I want to get you to explain that for a second. But for 2017, the summer of 2017, our current summer, the prediction was it would probably be back to normal, which is back to average, which has not been good, or maybe even a little worse than average, a lot of rainfall. And so June came, July came, August was predicted to be a bit of a problem. We're just seeing those results. Tell us a little bit about the last two years and what we're seeing this summer. Over time, nutrient loading rates have been going down. What that means is the amount of algae created in the bay is going down. The amount of, of materials sinking into the deep water going down. And so the amount of oxygen being consumed in the deep water is starting to lessen. And so what we really see is that, um, yep, in the June and July, we, we have a dead zone still. But it doesn't go as far south as it used to. And um, in the, in the uh, late summer and fall, it's going away quicker. And so those are really important signs. We are seeing um, dissolved oxygen uh, creeping into the deep water um, uh, in August and September. And that didn't happen in the past. But and so that's spatially important. and temporally, that's right. we're going in the right direction. Absolutely. And 15 and 16, we didn't see anoxia or hypoxia. And, and I should say that anoxia and hypoxia are measurements of dissolved oxygen in the water. And they are both uh, describing water that has very low, if zero, dissolved oxygen, a condition which is detrimental to all marine life. No, uh, in the late summer, we did not see it, summer. where typically... We did. Oh, yes. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like um, if, if anoxia was, was a big engine, you know, arr, big evil engine, um, that evil engine is running out of gas sooner... Good. And it's not extending uh, down the bay as much as it used to. So those are good, good signs. Well, this is, this is, this is worth all of, uh, I don't, I'm not sure what it's worth, but I'm very happy because for once in my life, I have actually seen some data that you have not. The first, <laughs> the first two weeks of August, at least uh, Maryland DNR is reporting much lower than expected lower than average, which might have something to do with that resilience you talked about, because it's certainly been a wet spring and wet summer. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that's happening is that the, the concentration of nitrogen and phosphorus um, in the water, they have been going down. So even though it's wet, there's less of that, those algal growing nutrients in the water. Now, there are still negative effects to, to high flow, don't get me wrong, but um, uh, there's progress happening here, and that's real important. On that note, I'm going to uh, turn shut us down <laughs> with great thanks.
to you, Walter Boynton, for your decades and decades of scientific inquiry and reporting. You're, you're one of many, but it's still somewhat rare of the scientists who are one-armed, meaning you don't always say, and on the other hand. <laughs> you tell it like it is, you state what you believe, it's um, scientifically valid, and it has played an enormous role in the restoration of this bay. So we're very lucky to have you, and I just haven't had more fun doing these in a long time than this last uh, a bit of time with you. So thank you, Walter. Oh, you're welcome, Will. This is Will Baker for our continuing podcast, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay, thanking Dr. Walter Boynton for his time with us. Thank you so much.